0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: Welcome to Japanese, I'm your host, Takiko Katayama, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese culinary academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are going to live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen and izakaya, but what exactly are they? The Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Joshua Plunkett, a chef who worked at uh, prominent kitchens uh, including Noma in Denmark, Momofuku, and Atera Inu in New York City. And Josh spent intense seven months in Japan last year cooking and discovering Japanese culture. Despite their interest in Japanese cooking, not many non-Japanese chefs get to work in the kitchen in Japan. Partly because of the restaurant's policy, language barriers, uh, visa, etc. So today, Josh will discuss his unique experience in Japan as a chef and a curious traveler and uh, what he discovered there. But before we start, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and now on Spotify's podcast. Uh, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about uh, um, topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at Needs at org or com. Now let's start our conversation with Joshua Plunkett. Hello, Josh. Welcome hey. to Japan
4: Needs. Thanks for having me.
3: So, um, uh, first of all, where are you from and uh, what did you eat when you grew up?
4: Um, well, I'm from Dublin, Ireland, um, and I lived there till I was about 21, and then I came to New York. but. Um, I uh, eating when I was growing up. I guess my mum was a good cook, so um, we ate well. We were lucky to travel a lot as well around Europe, that kind of thing. So, but she used to cook a lot at home, like Irish food, like stews and lamb chops and that kind of thing.
5: Mm,
3: yeah, I used to love. I used to live in London, so cool. I, was, I really enjoyed <laughs> that. Um, so, how did you get into cooking professionally?
4: Um, probably. Well, I mean, my interest in food definitely stemmed from my mother. Um, and then we used to, we used to go and eat out a lot. I guess when I was a kid. Um, and growing up and then when I was in Ireland when you're about 16 you go in a thing called transition year in school um, and you do work experience during the year and I went to um, I went to like a a lawyer's office and I went to an architect's and I also went down to a place in uh, the south of Ireland called Ballymaloo which is a cookery school I spent a week there Um, and there's a chef there called Darina Allen she's kind of like the Alice Waters of Ireland kind of Mm. thing so that kind of probably gave me like the bug and then after that i went back into the course after school and she helped me go to a restaurant in dublin and then i was i did go to university and do philosophy but i was always like cooking during during it and then during the summers and then i guess when i finished university i kind of fully went went into it and decided i wanted to 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 do it
3: Mm, right and sounds like you went you really took a creative path um as a chef so um you started noma in Denmark, and eventually uh, you moved to New York in two thousand and fourteen, uh, and so your resume is pretty impressive. So you worked at the Momofuku by David Chang and Luxus and Tours by Daniel Burns, and Atera, uh, which uh, has two Michelin stars. So, how what did you learn from these restaurants?
4: Um, well, I, well, I guess I started in Dublin in Chapter One, which is a one-star restaurant. The chef's Ross Lewis, and that was fun because I mean, I guess I was like. Didn't really know much at all then. And, you know, that was just everything was new. And I remember the chef, the head chef at the time was Garrett Byrne. And he was like, you need to be like a sponge. You just have to (laughs) take everything in. So I did that. And then I was in university. And then I went to stage at Noma for a summer. Um, And then I started coming over to the States as well. Yeah. And then Momofuku. And then, yeah, I went to Luxus and Atera. Um, I guess aside from the food at each restaurant, you know, which was different. I mean, Momofuku is sort of like Korean american kind of stuff and then luxus and terra was nordic um i guess you learn things from each chef you know specifically and then the people you work with and to some extent that kind of shapes you and each restaurant um, has its own set of challenges and i guess like whether it's just like difficult food or, or the the actual physical layout of the restaurant i guess like you run around and um navigate your way through those and that's kind of how you learn I guess. Mm, yeah.
3: Right. I mean, those old age of restaurants, Momok and Luxus and Tours and Atera, they were really to- totally different independently, yeah. right? So
4: yeah, that's true. Yeah. Also, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, Atera was like a tasting menu. Luxus was tasting menu, but also Tours. So we did the bar food as well. So that was like kind of a mix of the two. And.
3: Mm, that's a beer restaurant. And then yeah. in the back, yeah, yeah. So that was
4: quite unique, really. Right. Um, And. Then Fuku was Korean, but it was—I guess—it was a lot more covers, like high mm-hmm. kind of high covers, which was different to Luxus and Terra.
3: Right. So no, mm. I'm curious though that you are from Ireland, but you decided to come to the States, and then eventually you go to Japan. So is that something in your mind? You want to discover new things? Um,
4: I guess, yeah. I definitely always like to travel, and I like going home, but I also like I like being away. I guess, and it's just everything so new and different all the time. Mm. So. I guess you get to learn that way. And yeah, I guess it's exciting.
3: Right. Okay. So let's talk about your experience in Japan now. So um, you went to Japan from January to August 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, you cooked uh, only Western food up until you went to Japan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did you find an opportunity to cook in Japan?
4: Um, I had a friend who went to university in Dublin. And he was working for a Japanese chef in London and um, he had actually left london he'd moved out to kyoto to work in a kaiseki place mm,
5: so
3: with a um, japanese guy
4: yeah with the, with a japanese guy okay, yeah right. who yeah it was called nakazen and um, nakazen actually worked at uh, kikonoi mm.
3: for about 10 years kikonoi actually is uh, one of the best i um, three michelin star yeah, kaiseki super restaurants in
4: kyoto um so i guess i was talking to giles and then through through the chef that he worked for in London I kind of arranged to go out to Japan and they helped organise I guess the trip and, you know, set me up with some contacts and people to to meet and work for. So that's kind of how it came about. I mean it, it would have been very difficult otherwise. It is tricky to go over there. Mm. You know? Everything's so different and it's it's there's a the language is obviously a big barrier when you're trying to organize things like that. <laughs> yeah. Right.
3: So but the, you were interested in going to totally new environment because you said uh, you've never been to asia before mm.
4: yeah i'd never been to asia before so i mean that was like going to be a crazy massive adventure so i guess yeah it was kind of mad i mean i guess i just like dropped everything here <laughs> and just left new york and i went went to japan um and i didn't really know what was going to happen to be honest but uh it worked out all right
3: fantastic <laughs> that's most exciting um so where did you work in japan
4: um well i worked in kyoto um, which was really cool. I'm glad I went to Kyoto in the end. Um, it was a restaurant called Taiho, um, and it was a it's a family restaurant just near Nijo Station,
5: mm.
4: um, and they serve Chinese food, Sichuan food. Um, the chef was he's called Koki and um, he's cool he's about 36 or 37 but his dad actually opened the restaurant mm. um in the early 70s and he was he was about 24 when he opened the restaurant he's 70 now and he works every single day six days a week and has done since he was 24 it's absolutely wow. insane yeah it was super crazy work ethic mm. so yeah and then i worked six days a week um from about 8 30 in the morning till like 1 a.m kind of thing <laughs> but it was cool we used to go in and we would sit down we'd have breakfast together and then we'd have we would do lunch, and then we would sit down and eat our family meal, like Mac and I used mm. to call it. And then we would do dinner service, and then we would all sit down again after and, and eat together. Wow! Um, and the, the the restaurant was kind of unique in the sense that like it was Szechuan food, and we served they served loads of natural wine as well. Um, wow! So that was really cool, really interesting.
3: Mm, that's because of the the second generation. Yeah, absolutely,
4: yeah. Koki kind of, like, took over when he was 26. So Mm. he's been in charge about 10 years now. But Taisho still works every day. And, I mean, I guess the funniest thing about it was that, like, it was a family restaurant. So, like, the sister worked, the mother, um, Okasan, she cooked all the noodles and all the dumplings. (laughs) And Taisho did all the old dishes, like the, you know, yakisoba and all the kind of older, like, traditional Chinese stuff. And then Koki does all his new stuff. Mm. So it was good. I'd never worked in, like, a restaurant with just was so family-oriented and they lived above the restaurant stuff because you just don't really get that in New York, you know? Oh, wow.
3: I, I don't think even in Japan either.
4: <laughs> yeah, maybe not.
3: Yeah, yeah. it sounds like you became a part of the family. The <laughs> yeah, family. almost, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, is that because of your friend who introduced you to that Chinese restaurant?
4: Yeah, I mean, he was friends with Koki and I think, um, I guess, from their perspective, and they're probably right, like uh, my, my training in New York had been quite fine dining. mm um, and like tasting menus and all that kind of stuff. So, I guess they were. It was trying to move me away from maybe that a little bit because Taiho is just like a little tiny neighborhood restaurant. They do like loads of people for lunch and loads of people for dinner. So it was it was it was like a departure from um, kind of rigid, fancy mm. tasting menus.
3: Right. Yeah. So, um, but you know the cookie, the second generation, mm-hmm. he wanted to convert, transform the restaurant into something totally mm. new.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was he took over and Koki trained around Kyoto in Chinese restaurants as well. And he spent a little bit of time in China. Like he speaks, he speaks enough Chinese to like communicate with them. Um, but there's no like there's no Chinese people actually at Taiho. But he, I mean, he then he just kind of like if Koki's interest, he's incredibly, he was just like super curious. So he just decided he liked natural wine. And mm. then so there's a girl, Misa-san, and she's she's like the sommelier. Mm. So she came and she, she, she does all the wine program and... Um, and then I probably because they brought in natural wine, it's it's changed the nature of the restaurant because it brings in. There's a very good wine shop in um, Kyoto called Ethelvine, mm. and so that there's a there's a whole crowd of natural wine people, especially from Europe, who you know come to Japan, and they go to agami San. He brings them to to Taiho. So uh, for Koki, that opened up a whole new world of wow. things. Yeah. So like, now he goes to Europe. I went with him in September. We went to Paris and Barcelona and we did dinners in Vervale and Barberetal, which are natural wine bars,
5: mm.
4: and doing Chinese food.
3: Right. So, mm. Kind of Japanese-Chinese food, actually. Yeah, right?
4: uh, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it's Chinese but with a very sort of Japanese sensibility and all the all the ingredients are Japanese. I mean, they buy some stuff from China, but like, they use Omi beef and, you know, amazing tofu from Kyoto and mm. um, all the amazing fish and vegetables from Kyoto. Right, so, yeah.
3: yeah. So like, Omi beef is a wagyu beef, mm-hmm. like yeah. very fatty yeah. expensive, yeah. but the local regional specialty. And uh, so Kyoto vegetables, mm-hmm. I heard it's like uh, around 40 different, uh, nationally designated Kyoto vegetables. Wow, okay. Yeah. So yeah,
4: I mean, I just remember it was, it's, yeah, I mean, so there was a, a guy who would forage them. Mm. because in springtime um Kyoto I mean Kyoto's famous for its water right and also so I mean that's why all the, like the kayaseki's there and everything and all the dashi is amazing all that kind of stuff but mm. they get there gr- yeah order, right? yeah so they, they get incredible vegetables. Just like really unique little things I'd never seen before, like fukinodo and Mm. all those kind of things. Um, Yeah, so it was really cool to see all that
3: coming Mm. coming in. But, you know, for listeners who are not familiar with Japanese Chinese food, there's so many Chinese restaurants in Mm. the whole country. Yeah, yeah. Then surprisingly, I've never heard of any non-Japanese person working for (laughs) a Chinese
4: restaurant in Japan, especially in Kyoto. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, it's funny because the mother and Koki, they kind of look Chinese, but they're actually not. But mm. um, yeah
3: <laughs> okay so uh, so you did you speak Japanese that time
4: no I mean I went over and um, I spoke absolutely no Japanese nothing I didn't even know to say thank you properly <laughs> and then um, I mean every day I guess it was just you know they would bring me something and it was like you know a fish and mm. it was a mackerel and they'd be like point at it and they'd be like Saba
5: mm. so
4: I'd try to remember and then the next day it was something else and You know, a carrot, ninjin And then just, I literally built it up like that. Just like every day, like trying to learn like a new ingredient.
5: Mm. And then,
4: you know, I mean, my Japanese is extremely limited. But um, I remember after about, it was really hard at the start because I just couldn't understand anything. And like Mm. everything was new. But the the mother, Okasan, she would call out the orders. And I remember like, I just couldn't make a word word of it. I didn't know what she was saying. (laughs) And then after about four or five weeks, she would call out things. Like it would be like, Yodale Dore. And I would be like, I'd know what it was. And mm. I was that, that was like a turning point when I started to like understand what was going on and kind of your level of interaction then was able to like increase.
3: Right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And uh, so you naturally, you know, share the whole day, right? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. So did you communicate by hand? Or? Um,
4: <laughs> I mean, well, Misa-san, the, the, the wine girl, she spoke English. Mm. Yeah. Um, but everybody else in the kitchen didn't really have any English at all. So, it was tricky. I mean, Daisuke, he was the sous-chef we used to use a lot. There was a, a lot of Google Translate. Mm. Um, but then we, we kind of just came up with, like, you know, words that I understood or they understood. And um, we had our own little language kind of thing that, like, made it work.
5: Mm. Um,
4: but gradually, I got, you know, I got a grasp of it. And then in a restaurant, you're only working within a certain kind of boundary, as it were. Like, you know, I probably had 40 jobs that I did.
5: Mm. So, you know,
4: once I once I learned them, you know, I learned the the name for cabbage or the name for whatever and I knew what the preparation was and they just could say it and I could go and do it then.
3: Mm, So that chef's language helped.
4: Yeah, yeah, Mm. yeah. Kitchen kitchen language.
3: Mm, it must <laughs> be encouraging for listeners who might be interested in going to Japan and cook yeah, without the sure. I mean, it's, it's
4: possible. You just need to go and do it. It's, it's hard, mm. but it's worth it.
3: Right. And yeah. what about the visa? These, uh, did they take? Um, one, did
4: the you? visa visa thing for me, luckily, was really, really straightforward. I mean, because um, I'm used to going to the American embassy, which, you know, is it is what it is. And <laughs> I am... Um, went to the Japanese embassy I flew home from America at Christmas and I went from the airport straight to the Japanese embassy because I was under a little bit of time pressure to get my visa Mm. ready over Christmas for January to go so I went in and I was there for 11 minutes Hmm. and um, I got a working holiday visa which is a one-year visa for um, Japan and it lets you pretty much work in any field you want Hmm. Um, but I don't think it's available for Americans, which is unfortunate. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There is a list on on the like Japanese kind of embassy site of the countries that are can do it. Mm. But I'm, I'm pretty sure America isn't one of them, unfortunately.
3: Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I understand that Japan, at least it used to be like with Australia mm. and you can go for yeah. you
4: yeah. or something yeah.
3: like that, right? Okay. And uh, so you are in charge of cooking Chinese at Taiho? And um,
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't really in charge of anything per se because... I guess I couldn't, it was tricky, especially in service when it was like super fast paced to communicate. Mm. But I used to work, um, I worked with a little young guy and he was called Kaji. Mm. Um, So like starting off, he would just, I would kind of just do prep. Um, And then I would like, then I started like plating dishes and starters. And obviously like over time, I mean, after like a month or two, I was like settled and relatively capable so i was able to do other things and then koki would always he started letting me do like pretty much do all the fish butchery which is amazing mm. so like he taught me a lot of that and i learned how to like we used to serve sup on like turtle
5: mm-hmm. so
4: i learned how to like butcher turtles and we did frog and koki koki was like he would just go to the fish market and buy all this like mad stuff i'd never seen before and then like he would do do one or whatever and then i'd let me, he'd let me do the rest and stuff so that was really cool i learned a lot about fish and he taught me how to do you know ikijime and all that kind of stuff mm. can really you tell
3: explain ikijime to uh, the audience yeah
4: i mean i learned ikijime from koki and he doesn't really have a lot of english so i just kind of learned how to do it but um i mean basically you just wallop the fish on the head and then you you cut it at its neck and at its tail and, it, and then you open up the the nervous cord and mm-hmm. then you have a special wire and you just like put the wire down the the core of the fish down the, the nervous cord and it just ruptures it all. So the, the basically the animal like thinks it's kind of still alive, sort of, as it were. And it it doesn't it kind of decays in a different way. And you can, like, age the fish. It changes the texture
5: mm. kind of thing.
3: Right. I heard that the, the fish even doesn't realize.
5: It's versus, Yeah, you're struggling yeah. and
3: losing all the amino acid. Yeah. It's yeah. still alive. Yeah. in The fish mind. Yeah. Still yeah. dead. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you just, like, uh, draw out the blood, which keeps yeah. it yeah. really fresh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, now, so living in Kyoto, mm-hmm. I'm super curious about that because a lot of um, Japanese people say Kyoto people are different. Yeah. And culturally, like, you're surrounded by thousands, literally thousands mm-hmm. of uh, temples and shrines. Mm,
4: yeah. Um, yeah, Kyoto people. Um, I guess Kyoto was a little more traditional mm. than, than, the, than, the, uh, than Tokyo or whatever. I mean, they, they, they kind of live in their history, I guess, in Kyoto. Um, But it was an amazing place to live, I think, for me coming to Japan and it being a new place because it's sort of, I mean, I don't want to take away from the rest of Japan by any means, but Kyoto is a special place just in the sense that like you are surrounded by so much history Mm. and so many special, amazing, beautiful things. Like all the temples are incredible and just being around all the kaiseki. Like I I lived in Higashiyama and there was a restaurant around the corner called Hyotei and hyote has been open for 400 years. Right. which is crazy and mm-hmm. then i mean michelin came over and gave them three stars but w- when you're 400 years old three michelin stars is kind of irrelevant it's just it's special anyway you know right. but it started off as a tea shop you know mm-hmm. or like a tea house and and now, now they do like dinner and lunch and everything but yeah so they were just i mean kyoto was an amazing place to live just because i was so immersed in kind of old japan right
3: guess, well it's um you know you said uh people live in history Mm. what do you mean by that
4: I mean I guess Kyoto is more traditional and the buildings are traditional and the temples are all still there and I mean probably to some extent I guess Kyoto wasn't bombed during the war Mm. because there was nothing really of strategic value Right. So it, it it remained intact. Like I mean, Sapporo and Tokyo and stuff were pretty badly mm. damaged. But I heard
3: that the uh, actually American government avoided because it's too beautiful. Beautiful, to destroy. yeah. I read that
4: too. Like there was, a, I think it was like a general or something that went on his honeymoon to Kyoto and he mm. remembered it.
3: Ah. and He was like, "We
4: just we can't do that because it's it's a war for we're trying to save humanity,
3: mm. so we, we couldn't
4: we can't destroy it."
3: Right. Well, yeah. oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah.
3: Right. Um, yeah, that's uh, one thing about. Uh, what I found interesting was uh, when I was speaking to uh, Kyoto Kaiseki chefs, mm-hmm. and uh, their business is not just serving dinners because mm-hmm. they have to serve, uh, cater to uh, births of babies, to birthdays, to funerals, of course not to mention weddings. So, their life is connected to the families for long, long years. Mm. I think a hyote is like 16th generation yeah, or something like that. It's absolutely insane. Right. So, it's, it's a I think the the fact that they're surrounded by shrines and temples, your life is more closely connected to religions, mm. and also restaurants are already pulled into that kind of connection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a uh, it's like, you know, when I spoke to visit the kaiseki restaurant, and the chef said, uh, "Yeah, you, I'm very busy. You have like a uh, uh, good regular customers." Mm. um Like anniversary party or something. It's like the whole kitchen was uh, catering the bento boxes. Right. Yeah.
4: And I guess as well, I mean, in Kayaseki as well, it's it's kind of special in a sense because I mean, tea ceremony is obviously so connected to like Taoism and Buddhism and stuff. And then Kayaseki basically evolved from tea ceremony itself.
3: Mm, Right.
4: So I mean, it's uh, it's like just everywhere in Kyoto.
3: Right.
4: And and, then Uji's right there as well. Mm. With all the tea.
3: Right. Yeah, so you are willing you into tea, right, Japanese yeah, tea? Uh,
4: yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much probably just from a terra was kind of the first point because there was this amazing guy there called Jeff and he had a awesome tea program. Right, and he we, was
3: called the Tea Summary. Yeah, I heard about yeah him
4: actually. yeah. Um, and he would do, I mean, just like a wine pairing, we had a tea pairing. Mm. And I'm not really sure why. I guess I just, I don't know. I just took a, a liking to it, but I was just fascinated by it. And then I used to, he kind of, set me up with a little, like, mini tea program for me. And I I would buy stuff and try to learn about it and brew it at home. So then, yeah, when I went to Japan, I tried to make the most of it. And when I visited tea farms, I I actually, one of the funniest days I had was I I went to Tokoname, Mm
5: -hmm.
4: outside Nagoya, to buy a teapot. It was my first proper day off from Taiho. And... I don't know why. I mean, I guess it was tricky because you can't really Google these things because it's all in Japanese and I can't read Japanese. <laughs> so I, I, I decided I'm going to go to Tokoname to buy this teapot. Mm. So I went, I got the, got the Shinkansen all the way to Nagoya on my day off. I got another JR train all the way out to, to <laughs> Tokoname to buy the teapot. And I got to the place, the middle of nowhere, and it was closed. Oh, and wow. I, I traveled the whole way <laughs> on the Shinkansen and everything. Mm. Um. So, yeah, so, the, so tea tea, tea was a big part of Japan for me. I used to buy a lot of tea, and I bought bought a lot of teaware, like all the nice little teapots and stuff, and mm. I visited tea farms in Nara, and, yeah, it was amazing. It
5: was mm.
3: cool. So, visiting tea farms, like, you make an appointment, or just a... Mm,
4: well, it's a bit tricky. I mean, that was one of the things that was great about living there, was that you make all these contacts. I had a friend called Masayo, and she is a, she was actually a chef in New York for about eight years. Yeah,
3: I know Masayo.
4: Do you know Masayo? Mikunagoshi, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so... She was, she, was, she was a good friend. So she, I mean, she's incredible contacts there and she works with Nara Tourism Board. Mm. Um, so she brought me. Yeah, we we went right? and visited, and yeah, she was friends with them, and they right. like made us tea and everything.
3: Well, and Masayo, so. she's like a traveling chef because yeah. she had a restaurant in Kyoto. Yeah, closed. Yeah, sold it. to yeah. someone else. She
4: does a lot of dinners and stuff. Just she, she, she just like seems to have loads of fun, really. Mm. Um, she does pop up dinners and stuff. I know she's working on like a space kind of thing where she'll be able to mm. do like special events with artists and you know right. cross people and that kind of thing, and do dinners with them and that kind of thing. In Kyoto.
5: Mm. So that's
4: probably in the pipeline.
3: Right. It's very <laughs> inspiring. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so how did you find the people in Kyoto in your eyes?
4: Oh, I mean, they were amazing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the one thing I s- when I started to realize the difference was I used to go to Osaka on my days off. And there was a sous chef in Taiho um, from Osaka. Mm. He, he, he always used to talk about Osaka people. Right. <laughs> And, and I realized that he was very kind of energetic and cheeky and jokey and all this kind of thing. Mm. Um, and that was Osaka people. They're kind of like jokers right. and full of energy. And
3: Yeah, and I heard it when you in Osaka, since you're really young, you have to try to be always funny. I have to come up with okay. jokes.
4: <laughs> I know they have. I'm not sure what, the, what, the, what it actually is in Japanese, but they have a greeting that they only use in Osaka. And it literally translates to, are you making money?
3: Ah. Oh. Um, I'm not sure
4: what it is but but like that's their greeting right um, but yeah so in comparison to Kyoto people um, I mean Kyoto people were a lot more reserved quiet um, and maybe, maybe I, I don't know if traditional is the right word but you know they were more focused on their history, I guess. Osaka mm. is quite modern and like brash and loud. And like when I was in Osaka, people would come up to me and say hello and ask me, well, well you know, where is I from? And Well, in Kyoto, people are much more reserved and quiet. Right.
3: Yeah, yeah that's classic. They're adjacent cities, right? You can yeah, go in between and have no. It
4: was amazing, yeah, because the I used to get the Keihan line, but it was a cool place to live because you had Kyoto, which was like st- amazing and beautiful and so much history. And then you could go to Osaka for dinner and just have like a crazy time. Mm. and then come back it was kind of it's unique to have like two massive well not massive cities but big big cities with such different personalities like Aye. right beside each other so it was cool
3: yeah i think uh, the kyoto is based on like emperors and the nobles mm. and um, when you are this is a really a classic kyoto personality story so if when you are asked come over and uh, come to you know our, our house and then you have to say no twice <laughs> If you say, it's like, okay, I'm coming. It's like, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but then the third time you accept it. Okay. And uh, whereas in Osaka, that's the, the state of commerce. Mm. So you negotiate. If you yeah. go to the market, like, you know, the greeting, yeah. how much money you're yeah, making. Yeah. It's the same mindset and that their dialect is stronger. And they saw something things really straightforward. Yeah. But then it's kind of uh, coded mm. in the soft. Like tones, and then you're stupid. They say, it's but if you say it stupid in Japanese Tokyo language, it's kind of really harsh. It's
4: funny you should say that. So because I used a lot. I mean, a lot of my Japanese I learned from the sous chef. Mm. So, and then when, when, when like when you're not studying, you've no you've no point of reference. It's all you know. So. I mean, I used to, le- he used to teach me words, but mm-hmm. they were uh, like Osaka Ben. Mm. So like instead of Wakalani," Wakalanai, I, mm. would, I would be uh, Wakalahan.
5: Uh, yeah. <laughs>
4: and Japanese people, I think in Kyoto or when I went to Tokyo and this like white guy <laughs> was saying Wakalahan, <laughs> they just, they just burst out laughing. They thought it was so funny. I yeah, guess, it's like, I guess it's like, so. a, you know, just a bizarre accent to have.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just funny. (laughs) And then there's a culture of comedy Mm, in Osaka region. So, yeah, I think we had a great time there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk about just uh, uh, regional cuisine discoveries even more. So please stay with us.
1: Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Koren is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Joshua Plunkett, a chef who worked at the prominent kitchens like Noma in Denmark, Momofuku, and Atera in New York City. And he spent uh, intense seven months in Japan last year cooking and discovering Japanese culture. So um, you've been talking about all different ex- experiences for you in Japan, mm. but I just wanted to ask you—you um, know—you worked at the Taiho in Kyoto, which mm-hmm. is a Chinese restaurant, and um, how do you find the difference between Chinese, Chinese, and Japanese Chinese?
5: Yeah,
4: um, I guess I well, so I didn't really know, and then because I, I mean, I'd eaten Chinese food here, but I'd nothing to go against because I'd never been to China. So I was at Taiho probably February, March, April, May. Um, So I had about four months at Taiho, and then every year, Koki takes everybody from their restaurant to China on Mm. a trip to learn. So last year, they went to Hangzhou, Mm. um, and we went to um, visit a a shokoshu brewery, like a Chinese sake.
3: Mm. Like uh, spirits
4: distilled. Um, And so they they sell this shokoshu at the um, restaurant, so they're friends with the guy, and he he brought us all around Hangzhou. We went to um, Shaoxing, which is famous for the wine, obviously, and the vinegar. Mm. Um, and we went to Longjing. Um, but yeah, the meals, the meals we had were were pretty different to Taiho. Um They, um, I just remember these huge tables of just full of all sorts of different dishes. Um, and, and the Chinese food had a lot of bones in it, I remember. Mm. So they kind of like would eat around them and spit the bones out and that kind of thing. Mm. We, we did go to one amazing place called uh, Longjing Manor, which I think translates as um, Dragonwell Manor. Mm. Um, and it's, it's kind of like Blue Hill Stone Barns, mm. kind of along those lines. Um, it's a lot older, but um, the chef there is quite famous um, because he is basically trying to rediscover kind of old Chinese farming methods and old vegetables and trying to preserve it all because mm. I mean now China's increasingly industrial right. so people are getting removed from you know farmlands and these kind of areas where they've lived for a long time and getting moved into like bigger big new cities and they're all their jobs are changing mm. so the, 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 this place is trying to like preserve all that kind of tradition and culture so we went there and we had the most it was a really amazing meal just with incredible ingredients. That was probably one of the best meals we had in China. Mm. Um, there's actually a, there's an amazing documentary. Maybe we can put it on the a link on the website or something, but it's all about longjing, mm. um, which was really cool.
3: Right. Well, you mentioned it's interesting that, you know, the style of Chinese cuisine, I think Japanese cuisine is more kind of a subdued. Mm. And uh, like Kaiseki, people say the length of food has to be um, right for... Dinah's mouth size. Right, right, right. Versus, you know, it's a more dynamic continental mindset. Yeah. Chinese cuisine. I mean, English definitely
4: in China. Um, I mean, I guess there's, th- I had like three, there was like, there's Chinese food in China, which is what I experienced. There was Chinese food in Japan that I experienced. And there was just Japanese food in mm. Japan. I remember that the food in China was like incredibly abundant. I just remember we, they just brought us huge platters of things. And like, we, there was more food than you could possibly eat. Mm. At Taiho, the Chinese food, this is back in Kyoto, um, was probably a little more refined. Mm. Like the, the, the this is the Japanese restaurant, this is a, the Chinese Japanese restaurant that I was working in in Kyoto, compared to China, was much more like refined. It was a little more kind of delicate, and there was a little more finesse to it than the, the, the Chinese food in China.
3: Mm. Yeah, right. I mean, if you go to like Yokohama, that's uh, the Chinatown yeah. in Japan. It's, it's a totally more Chinese.
5: Mm.
3: Although I think still. You know, there's a variation of Japanese applications. <laughs> but uh, that's interesting that you observe the difference. Mm. Right. And uh, so I heard that you, while you're in Japan, you visited many cities um, in Japan outside Kyoto, including, uh, of course, Tokyo and Shizuoka, Mie, Osaka, Hiroshima, Sapporo, Hakodate, Okinawa, Fukuoka, Kanazawa. That's a yeah, lot.
5: That's a lot. Right? <laughs> yeah.
3: So um, so one thing I, I, I heard that you, s- you stayed uh, with a farmer uh, mm-hmm. in mie Prefecture.
4: Yeah, the first month in Japan, um, I was staying with a Japanese chef in Tokyo, and he took us on a little trip around. We basically drove from um, Tokyo to Kyoto, but we stopped off along the way. It took about a week, Mm. maybe just over a week. Um, But yeah, we spent a lot of time in Mie, and we stayed with this uh, farmer who... um, just lived in this tiny valley it was crazy there was no phone coverage or anything it was really amazing Mm. um and she used to grow she grows vegetables she's about she's about 79 i think her name was kosan Mm. um so it was amazing we lived with her i just remember it was absolutely freezing so cold (laughs) but it was amazing and she would cook us dinner every night and we all sat around together and ate this like just Food that I'd never seen before—it was totally different. And then we would help her during the day, like we we went picking gobo, mm. and we picked we picked yuzu off tree like off the trees, and we made ubeshi. the Japanese sweets? Yeah. Right. Um, so that was amazing. And she basically her business was to grow vegetables, and then she would grate them, and she would dry them outside, and then she would package them all and sell them as like yasai dashi, mm. kind of like vegetable dashi. Ready to go kind of thing, but she was famous for like her vegetables because she was like completely kind of organic all that kind of thing.
3: Mm.
4: Um, so she's but, yeah. been
3: farming for years and oh, years. oh years
4: and years and years. Right. But it was there was a little bit it was a little bit sad just because she had a son, um, and the son was a I think he was a plumber or electrician or something, and he, he lived at home, but he had decided that he wasn't going to take over the farm. Mm. Um, and I think that maybe that's something that's happening in Japan a little bit. It's just like the younger people maybe aren't quite as right. kind of ingrained into the tradition. Maybe they like certainly right. not, you know, they're going to move away from it a little bit. Right. Yeah. And especially
3: there's no phone. Yeah. <laughs> enough yeah. What yeah. What yeah. Else? So right. I
4: guess it was an amazing experience. But also I did wonder like what was going to happen.
3: Mm. Yeah. right. Well, me, it's actually pretty close to Kyoto and Osaka. I'm uh, no, actually Nara, next to Nara Prefecture. Mm. So I'm sure the farmers are in demand for. Used to be yeah, sur- serving, uh, yeah. you know, all <laughs> yeah. those restaurants.
5: Yeah.
3: Mm. Right. So hopefully, yeah, we have to support them. <laughs> okay. And uh, also, um, I heard you discovered a donabe.
4: Yeah, um, we we visited a, um, a donabe maker.
3: Mm. So what is donabe for the listeners? I mean,
4: donabe is like a big clay pot <laughs> that you can cook in. Mm. Um, and we went to one in Iga
3: mm.
4: called Dorakugama. Um, and I bought, I bought, I have three of them now. I bought a beautiful rice cooker and I bought a, a donabe. And then just from my last trip to Japan in January, I bought a big, thick, heavy one. Mm. Um, and yeah, you can basically make hot pot with them at the table. Right. just like it's like a crazy big meal that everyone kind of in, jumps in and involves in, and it's really good fun. Right.
3: Mm. Yes, yeah, so I heard donabe. Um, it's special because they're cracks. Mm. That's made in uh, each one.
4: Yeah. So like, the this 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 guy in Drakogamo he makes everything by hand, and he uses just like a, it's a special clay from the area, so that the more you use it, it, it kind of ages and it, it becomes unique to you. Like your donabe will. Mm. will look unique. And they become more... The more you use them and the, the longer you have them, they become more beautiful.
3: Because mm, the cracks absorb whatever was inside yeah. and then yeah. becomes its own mm-hmm. kind of art. Yeah. Right. And I think donabe is also... It's because it's clay and uh, it cooks well mm. and it can hold high heat and yeah. it retains it.
4: Yeah. So it's, I guess... When, when we cook here with like pots and stuff you just kind of turn the pot off and it, it stops boiling mm. but depending on the, the material of your donabe and how thick it is you know there's a residual heat in the donabe it's, it'll stay hot for, it'll stay bubbling mm. so like you can cook things gently so I mean things like tofu or like some Japanese ingredients are kind of delicate so you don't want to have like a lot of harsh heat you know? mm. so you can just once the donabe is hot you can turn it off but th- there's still heat in the pot and it'll cook it really gently
3: right yeah so I think uh, almost I wouldn't say every whole household, but uh, many households in Japan have done a bit. I'm
5: sure, yeah. Right?
3: And yeah. it's fun, you know, put the whole the gas, yeah, it's amazing. You know, heat on it's the really table, good fun. Yeah. and then and
4: then the, the way you kind of get like a coursed meal, as it were. You and it it's cool because it's just one thing on the table, but it keeps changing. Because mm, you, you keep, know, keep adding you different. You keep adding ingredients. You take things out. You put fish in. And then the you know all the. Flavor from the fish goes into it, the fish comes out, and then your leftover rice, you put the rice in, and you keep mm-hmm. cooking it, and you make a porridge, and then you can pour egg in on top of that, and, yeah, it's just super fun. Right,
3: and, so over time, yeah. throughout the dinner, you're cooking kind of dashi yeah, in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so that's there's now this donabe, D-O-N-A-B-E, <laughs> <laughs> clay pot. Okay, so um, I'm curious, what did you see in Kanazawa?
4: Kanazawa, well, I wanted to go... Um, and then I didn't really have a chance, but I had a friend who actually worked in the same restaurant I did before me, called Tom. And his he's married to a Japanese girl, and she's from Kanazawa. So he was able to give me a lot of really good recommendations. So my parents actually came over to visit just right at the end of my time in Japan, and we went to Kanazawa. And um, I went to probably one of the best meals I've ever had, which was it was a sushi meal in a place called Sushi maku- Makumi mm-hmm. in nonoichi mm. Um, it's really in the middle of nowhere, just like out in these kind of rice fields and a little like kind of collection of houses. But it just was absolutely stunning. It was amazing. And he um, he basically makes sushi just from the Ishikawa prefecture. So he just uses all the fish from Ishikawa. Mm. Um, and just, yeah, just the quality of it and just kind of the clarity of the meal was just incredible. It was amazing. I just remember we had like two things. We, we had a piece of grilled fish, which was just like absolutely mind-blowing. And then it was kind of fun as well because he made like a lollipop. From um, ebi, it's like Mm. an ebi lolly, like a prawn lollipop, and he Mm. mixed it with rice and grilled it on the on the. The, the charcoal it was really cool right. but yeah and then we visited um kenrukuen as well mm-hmm. which is one of the three main gardens of tokyo or of uh, japan mm. so that was like, just crazy beautiful right. yeah kanazawa was kind of like a mini kyoto
5: right
3: mm. well, mm. because uh the traditionally um it was known for architecture and gardens and then because it wasn't damaged during the world war Two mm. like kyoto yeah and uh, it used to be, I heard, it's like a fourth, fourth largest city in Japan. It's now oh. like 30-something. Yeah, it's
4: way down there. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Right. A, there's a big uh, daimyo, like, uh, you know, that noble person used uh-huh. to manage right. the land. So it was powerful. And also... I think it's known for um, the abundance of gold leaf craftsmen. Okay. So, did you see gold leaves on mm, any food? I can't remember. <laughs> not not in you? Kanazawa, no. Yeah, like you you yeah. a Kaiseki restaurant, there's a gold leaf on top, and yeah. then there's a gold leaf ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the touristy places. Actually, outside of Kenroku, there's an ice cream shop. Okay. And there's gold leaf on top of ice okay. cream.
4: I missed
5: that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <Well, laughs> um, anyway, so, um, they also, um, finally, you went to Hokkaido. Right. Mm. Yeah, I went so, to Hokkaido. How was the experience?
4: Hokkaido was amazing. I, mean, I went to Hokkaido twice, actually. I took, took one trip. The first trip I went with one of the guys I worked with. Um, he spoke a tiny bit of English, enough to communicate and say, do you want to go to Sapporo with me? So we, we decided to go for a weekend, um, and that was really good fun. I went to another sushi place, which was mind-blowing as well, and it was called Sushi Miyakawa. Mm. Um, and it's actually one of the newest three stars in Japan Because the Michelin guy gave him three stars mm. um, But he's very young And um, we went to the restaurant And he has I mean, it, just the quality was mind-blowing It was amazing, amazing meal And mm. it was cool Because I guess he had, um, he had a couple of girls working in the sushi kitchen as well Which in Japan is actually quite unusual mm. um, So that was really cool to see And then just basically the, the overall experience in Miyakawa Was amazing um, I was just so impressed by their like The hospitality mm. um, And just it was just an incredible restaurant And just the fact that they were It was new It was a new restaurant But it was just So good It was amazing yeah. mm. Um that was Sapporo We, we visited um Nika Whiskey as well. <laughs> and Aichi. Is it Aichi? I think it was. Mm-hmm. And oh, then but you
3: know, Hokkaido. you mentioned, you know, Hokkaido Sushi Place and mm. Kanazawa Sushi Place. Mm. And then I'm sure you found different types of, you know, different species of fish because mm. Hokkaido, I think people used to call it Gaichi, means outside the mainland. Right. right. And then their culture is different. They have a huge land. I heard it's yeah. the best snow in the universe. Yeah. Um, and also the Kanazawa, going back quickly, you know, it's a Kanazawa, it's the Noto Peninsula. Uh-huh. So the coastlines are very complicated mm-hmm. and it's facing the Japan Sea. So you see something like nodoguro, that's a very particular fish. Mm. And so I think uh, my point is if you travel all around Japan, just eating at such a place, you can see so many different kinds of yeah. fish.
4: I mean, I guess from, from Hokkaido, I mean, I went back recently and I went to Hakodate as well. Um, we actually did go to Naseko. For mm. snowboarding, and the snow is ridiculously amazing. Mm. It is amazing, <laughs> um, but Hokkaido—I guess the thing that struck me was probably the crab, mm. which is just yeah. everywhere, and then uni as well. And you can go and have these massive, like kaisendon, yeah, just covered with ki- with king crab and urchin and stuff for 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 fifteen dollars, and it's just it's mental. it's,
3: crazy. Right. it's so worth it. Just flying yeah. over, <laughs> yeah,
2: totally. Amazing. Right,
3: okay, um, all right, so. Um, yeah, so what are you traveling around in Japan, um, did you find any specific dishes that you liked? And perhaps you can... Uh, yeah, I mean, probably
4: those? too many to mention, but I did pick a few. The first one is kind of a funny one. Um, when I arrived in January last year, um, I got incredibly sick. I got the worst flu ever. Mm. It was so bad. And I was super, super weak. I could barely stand up. And it was also right on my birthday, on my 29th birthday. Oh. So I was in Akabane, just lying on the couch like a zombie mm. but I really needed to eat and it was super cold outside right. but like,
3: Akabani is like a little you know it's in in, in Tokyo yeah it's like, like an obscure city yeah, like. yeah.
4: Um, so this was Akabani Kida mm. and um, so I managed to get the energy together I could barely stand up I was just so sick I think it was just because just from traveling and then I was in a new place and mm. just I don't know must have got a bug or something but I was super super sick. But I went down just to like the most basic Japanese curry shop, mm. and I got it takeaway, and I brought it up. And I remember I was it was my that was actually on my birthday, <laughs> and I sat there eating the curry, and I was it was just so good. It was it's a good thing to have when you have a cold as well because mm-hmm. it, like it's spicy. Right.
3: The Japanese curry is a thicker and more yeah, kind of like a denser.
4: Yeah. Um But I, it's like it wasn't. Extraordinary, but just because of the conditions and the time, it mm. was amazing. I always remember that. That mm. was just like, that was the first time was, it was like, I've always remembered that curry. Um, <laughs> and then I probably had, like, there were so many amazing kind of home cooking meals. Mm. So, like, when we stayed with the farmer, we went to an incredible, amazing um, ryokan um, in Mie as well mm. after the farm. And it was a family, and they had actually lived near Fukushima. Okay. Um, I, I don't think they even farmed, and then after the tsunami and everything, they 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 decided it wasn't a good place to raise their children. They were afraid of the land and the water and that mm. kind of thing. So they moved to Mie and they started farming. Mm. Um, and it was just a like a young couple, and they had a son. Um, and they just gave us the most incredible meal. It was amazing. So that was really special.
3: Mm. Um, right. So it's a yukan, meaning a serves breakfast and dinner. Might make your futon yeah. and yeah. all those things. Yeah. So that must be amazing.
4: Um, and then I went to another, there was one really special place outside um, Kyoto called Miyamaso, mm.
5: Which, mm. Was a, which was a ryokan as well. Famous. Yes, yeah, super
4: famous. And su- it was probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, mm. It was incredible. It's, it's, it's up way up in the hills. Mm. I think you can get the bus there, but you're probably better off driving if you're going. Um, and it, it's been around for I mean, hundreds of years. It was mm-hmm. a temple. Right. Um. And, and now it's it's a ryokan like one of these kind of like a B and B I guess. But mm. it, this is like another level. But you know we had the most incredible meal there. They they um.
3: It's a Sojiki Nakahigashi Yes. Restaurant. Right. Yeah.
4: Well, it's yeah. It's his. They're the same family. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, so and they, I heard
3: it's hard to get a table. <laughs> yeah.
4: It's hard to get a table. It's hard to get in. Um. But they they do this. It's kais- They do a kaiseki esque meal, mm. but they call it a sumigusa which means freshly picked. Mm. And um, because it's up, it's way up in the hills in Kyoto, and the hills in Kyoto are famous for, you know, all these incredible vegetables and all that kind of stuff. So they um, pretty much try to forage the whole meal for you from around the area. And, like, mm. we even had a carp sashimi, and they caught the carp. And carp is, like, obviously a freshwater fish, so it can be quite um, soily. Like, the flavor right. tastes, like, muddy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they keep the fish alive for two weeks in in spring water and they filter it out so the fish naturally filters itself mm. for the clean water and then they kill it and then they serve it that, that's why they're able to serve it for sashimi. oh wow yeah it was amazing
3: mm. so. I heard a uh, this uh, chef uh, forage she forages every morning for mm. the restaurant
4: in, in Mimaso yep. yeah 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 and, and I mean that the the hassan mm-hmm is is amazing in um Miyamaso because it's just a tiny it's a collection of all mm. these tiny little amazing things from around like we'd river shrimp and there was like fukinoto and um cured egg like a cured egg yolk and just mm. everything from around the area
5: right
4: like it was just like the most incredible expression of like the area and the season
3: mm. so amazing. this hassan is uh, the name of uh the first, second course, second mm. course of uh, kaiseki cuisine, yeah. and it's a collection of like three to five. Mm. Well, it used to be, I think, two, to two, five different kind of little things. Mm-hmm. So that's like the best part of the yeah. restaurant. Like, it's cool. yeah, so that's great. You can
4: tell like what time of year it is.
3: Mm. <laughs> Actually, uh, uh you know the the son of uh, Nakahigashi, the chef,
4: is
5: in at New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was working in New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was on Kijitsu, the show too. I think as well at some point. He used he? to
3: be. Yeah. yeah, but he's doing interesting things. Yeah. so... Yeah, hopefully I'm gonna have him again on the awesome. show. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so the after spending intense seven months in Japan, what do you think is the essence of Japanese culture or Japanese food um, culture?
4: Yeah, I mean that is super difficult. Um, I mean, I guess even st- I mean for me personally, this whole Japanese thing is just like still learning. There's so much to learn. Like I don't feel I'll ever understand it kind of thing it's just like this massive journey it feels like now but i guess i mean if i had to kind of pin down main sort of things that i picked up on i guess the influence of other cultures in japan is kind of prevalent especially china Mm. um and then also i guess like after the Meiji period when western influence came back in that that even to this day is still kind of a big a big thing mm. um so i guess in some ways japanese culture is kind of like this battle of um kind of their tradition mm. and also this kind of like repeated absorption and refusal of other influences like some of it comes in some of it doesn't and they're quite strong about like rejecting some of it but then there's other aspects of other cultures that have become very ingrained into to japanese culture Um, it's a
3: very interesting point yeah undeniably we have you know chinese and korean influence Mm. and also like portugal like Mm -hmm. back in like you know centuries Mm -hmm. ago but um we're discerning like you know i'm sure you went to many pastry shops in Mm -hmm. japan which is completely like yeah pure european style So that's interesting. But how yeah. did and I discern? guess as well
4: from, from when we lived with people, I mean, luckily I experienced this quite early on because it was when we went to the farm and stuff, but like Shinto religion, mm-hmm. I guess, was a huge part. Um, and I guess to go back to the point about kind of culture coming in and out, um, it was, I mean, Shinto has changed, like and how it affects Japan kind of on a superficial level has changed a lot, but the core values um of of it have stuck through through the culture and through the people even to this day even the young people Mm. you can still see the kind of core values that kind of still exists
3: Mm. yeah i think uh one of the main features of shintoism to me uh the gratitude Mm. yeah and uh, this uh, god everywhere have to be more (laughs) well-behaved yeah yeah (laughs) respectful
4: um and then i guess just like to to add to that the couple of other things that i guess like totally blew me away was probably like when i first arrived in tokyo such a mass of people mm. but they have such respect for everybody else mm. and compared to probably living in new york to be honest i mean their, their view of of other people and how they're able to all live together and they're they're so respectful of other people's space and you know even just down to like the tiniest things like they don't use their phone on the train so it's nice and quiet and nobody has to listen to anybody else it's just Mm. like a nice peaceful place as opposed to here when the train is just like horrible Um, and then appreciation of craftsmanship in japan is incredible Mm. you can see that through like knives all the teaware like i mean i went to raku exhibition i mean that was just phenomenal Mm. and also i guess they have an incredible concept of time and and their understanding of age and respect for, like, the longevity of things, like like Hyote existing for 400 years or these, like, they just, they have an incredible respect for time mm. in that sense.
3: Right. Because, uh, you know, the term wabi-sabi, mm. like a tea ceremony. So, wabi-sabi means it's rustic mm. and it's a beauty in the rust. So, that's a very particular mindset, I think.
4: I mean, I guess that, yeah, they appreciate the delicate nature of things. Mm. But we don't, maybe, to the same extent, I think.
3: Right. It's just nice to have the balance, I think. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So, are you going to apply some Japanese elements to your future cooking? What's your uh. plan?
4: I don't know really exactly right now. I'm kind of trying to figure that out. But I mean, I definitely feel I mean, Japan will be part of my life for the rest of my life, for sure. I mean, it's, I'm, I really want to try and learn Japanese properly. I'd love to be able to read it at some point. Mm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I definitely plan on going back again and again and again. I'd love to think eventually I'll be able to go once a year. And I mean, I would totally if I could figure it out one day how to open a restaurant in Kyoto, like I would mm. be more than happy to go live there. Right. It was amazing.
3: Wow, <laughs> oh, that's great to hear it. All right, so good luck, and uh, where can we find your updates?
4: Um, nowhere, really. I kind of I got rid of Instagram and and Twitter before I went to Japan on purpose. Um, <laughs> so you just have to go go to Japan yourself. Mm, <laughs> okay,
3: <it>? so <laughs> the listeners, you have to just uh, try to find Josh Blanket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so well, really, keep me posted.
4: Cool. Thanks, yeah. thanks for having me. Yeah, hopefully <laughs>
3: I hear about you in opening restaurants in Kyoto. <laughs> in Kyoto. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so thank you. Um, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at Japan japaneats at org or com. and Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available anywhere in the world at org, iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify as a podcast. And our engineer is David Tessure and Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.